passage for us this morning. So if you kindly turn to Romans chapter 11, you'll find it in the, the thinner of the two Bibles on page 803. It's Romans chapter 11, beginning at verse 33 and going through to 12 verse 8. So we'll be starting at verse 33 of Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To be him the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your body, bodies as a living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we who are many, we who are many form one body and each member belonging to all others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. As we open up God's word this morning, let's uh, pray and commit this time to him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, and it's with great joy that we can read it and hear you speaking to us through it. Lord, your word is powerful. It divides between joint and marrow and soul and spirit. And we thank you that you speak to us personally in our rooms at home. You speak to us in, as families. And Lord God, you speak to us as a church. And we speak today and we ask that you'll open the eyes of our hearts to hear you as you speak to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mac Horton, the bespectacled 21-year-old swimming sensation, made his mark with gold at Rio and at the recent Commonwealth Games. Interestingly, when I googled him to find out a little about him, I found out that he began his swimming career at the age of 10. He began his career not to win gold medals, not to stand in that wonderful position, number one in the dais, not to be the Australian champion, but he began his career because of his fear of the water. 
some 11 years later, he became a Commonwealth and an Olympic champion. But the question is, why was he, is he, so successful? Natural talent? Yes. Good coaches? Of course. Superb fitness? Certainly. But really, his success boils down to one word, commitment. Swimming those thousands of kilometres every morning in training, focusing on his ultimate goal, dedication to the psyche required of a true champion. Commitment, dedication, focus. And those are the real issues about how and why he was such a champion. But when you think about it, commitment and dedication is important to every one of us in every aspect of our lives. We need to be committed to good health, to our careers, to our retirement plans, to our marriages, our families, to our sporting activities. Commitment is critical. Someone once said that nothing shapes your life more than the commitments you choose to make. They can either just develop you or destroy you. But either way, they will define you. But the most important commitment that we can make is committing our lives to our Saviour and Lord, Jesus Christ. And sadly today, many in our churches are happy to have Jesus as their Saviour, but sometimes less happy to have him as Lord of their lives. They see, many people see a commitment to Jesus as being restricting, a bondage, a sort of a straitjacket to their lives. But what they fail to realise is that he alone, Jesus alone, gives us freedom. And without a proper growing relationship with him, we remain in bondage to the evil one and to the ways of the world. But when we commit our lives to Jesus, he liberates us from this bondage. He sets us free. Because true freedom is liking what you do, not doing what you like. The scriptures tell us that Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. He is gentle and tender. He does not want to pile burden upon burden on us. And obedience under his yoke is a joy. It's when we disobey that the yoke chafes our neck. In the passage before us this morning, in Paul's letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul tells us what a commitment to Jesus Christ is all about. There is an outline inside your service sheet and you might like to follow that. And also, if you could have your Bibles open to Romans chapter 12. Paul outlines the basis of our commitment to Jesus, the scope of our commitment, the means and the result of it, the effect of committing our lives to our Lord. Let's look at Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, 
holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Paul is telling us that in view of God's incredible mercy, he calls us to commit our lives to Jesus. The first few chapters of Romans, particularly the chapters uh, 1, 2 and 3, the Apostle goes through various different types of people. He looks at the religious people. Are they right with God? No, not necessarily. He looks at the good, moral, living people. Are they right with God? No, not necessarily. He looks at the kind-hearted, gentle people. Are they right with God? No, not necessarily. He looks at it and in chapter 3, verse 23, he says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, not one. God is holy, perfect and, and just. We are all fallen human beings. We haven't put God first in our lives. People say to me, oh, I haven't broken any of the Ten Commandments. I'm a reasonably good person. I don't uh, rob banks. I don't commit adultery. I don't do all these sorts of things. No! But we have all failed God because we have put other gods before him. The first commandment we have broken. And Paul says, these people, none of them are right with God. But this morning we rejoice because in chapter 3 and verse 21, Paul says, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And when we realise that we have all failed God, we haven't honoured him as we ought, we've fallen short of his, his glory, his holiness. God is perfect, holy, righteous and just. And we have all fallen short. And we've separated ourselves from him. But now, as Paul says, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And when we understand how each one of us has failed God, how each one of us has separated ourselves from him, we will understand a little more of the mercy he has shown us. Mercy, he has not given us what we deserve. We deserve to be separated from him forever because we've failed him. But by God's incredible mercy, he has raised up for us a saviour in his son, Jesus Christ. And when we understand this incredible mercy, and that's what Paul says, in view of God's incredible mercy to us, think about it. He calls us to commit our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't appeal to moral principles. He doesn't say, well, you know, be good fellows, you know, improve your life, have better New Year's resolutions, do all these sorts of things. No! He doesn't call us to commit our lives to Jesus to have a happy, trouble-free life or to, or it's the right thing to do if we come to church on a Sunday morning or to get a ticket to heaven. No! 
He calls us to commit our lives to Jesus because of God's incredible mercy to us. And the more we understand that, the greater will be our commitment to his son. How can we not respond? How can we not respond when we just stop and think about what he's done for us? Every one of us is on that path to hell, the path to misery. But by his mercy, he has done something about it. In that same verse, verse 1 of chapter 12, Paul tells us that the scope of our commitment to Jesus should be nothing less than offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. God has given us his all. Let's stop and think about it. His one and only son, the one whom he loved so dearly, he gave him up for us. Not to enlighten our minds or to make us a bit smarter or, or, or to or raise our emotional levels or to improve our morals or to set an agenda. No. He gave up his son to redeem us. To redeem us from the pits of hell. To redeem us from the pits of despair, from misery. Can we give him anything less than our whole beings in gratitude? It's one matter to give certain things to God. We give him our time. We give him an hour or so on Sunday mornings. Um, we give him our, 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 our contributions, our gifts to the church. We give him our gifts as we serve in the church and as we glorify the, the body here. We give him, but it's quite another thing to give him our whole beings, our whole lives. In Jesus' time, the normal response to receiving a great blessing from God would be to go up to the temple and offer a sacrifice. And that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is asking us to do, to offer a sacrifice. But our sacrifice is to be a living sacrifice, our own selves, our own bodies, not a dead bird or animal or goat or lamb or whatever in the temple. Living sacrifices. Because remember, and Paul said in, in his letter to the church in Ephesus, in chapter 2, he said, once you were dead in transgressions and sins. Spiritually dead. Dead people can't do anything. Once we were dead. But now, through his mercy and grace, he has made us alive in Christ. We are alive. We are new creations in Christ. Living creations. We no longer need to offer dead animals or birds to God. Christ has brought all of that to, to, to an end by his once for all sacrifice. And also, in the Old Testament, the sacrifices of old belonged to God when they were made. And when we give ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, we belong to him. We are his. We have been bought at a price, a great price. Can we give him anything less than our whole being? Living sacrifices who hunger and to worship and serve our creator, the one who's redeemed us. 
holy sacrifices as we set ourselves apart for his exclusive use. Sacrifices that are pleasing to him, not because we deserve it, but because our offering of ourselves and our faith in his son perfectly meets his specifications. Paul tells us that the offering of our whole beings to God, our minds, our wills, our emotions, our personalities, our spirits and all the tangible things of our lives is our spiritual act of worship. That's the words that we have here. Spiritual act of worship. This is the true act of serving and worshipping God. This is the only reasonable thing to do. That's the force of the original language, the Greek, is that this is the only rational, reasonable thing to do. It's the only thing that makes sense when you have regard to what God has done for you in giving up his son so that your son will pay your price and my price. Someone's got to pay the price. We either pay it ourselves or Jesus has already paid it. That's the only rational thing to do. Anything less than 100% is unreasonable because God has given us his 100%, his son, his whole being. He was there triumphantly to the cross, gave his life on that Calvary cross. The blood, the sweat, the tears, the pain, the agony. Why? For you, for me the only way what did they say to him the soldiers say to him come down from the cross you're son of God you can bring yourself down bring come down but Jesus knew that if he had have done that that we would all be doomed to eternal misery because his death on the cross was paying our price we're going to sing that beautiful hymn after the sermon this morning when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. And the last verse, Isaac Watts writes, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. He says it all, doesn't he? That's Romans 12. So our basis of our commitment to Jesus is God's incredible mercy to us. So how can we offer ourselves to God? We've been asked to offer our whole beings to him. Well, the apostle gives us two imperatives. Firstly, one negative. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. And the other positive. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let's take some time out for a minute. We all know, I'm sure, that we are continually being sucked into the ways of the world. Even after we've come to repentance and faith in Jesus, we recognise his death on the cross as paying our price, recognise his glorious resurrection on the first Easter Sunday, recognise that that's proved beyond all doubt our sins have been paid 
Even after that, even after we do that, we know that the world, the present evil age, the temporary, the transient, tries desperately to squeeze us into its mould. We're imperfect. We're redeemed people, forgiven people by, by God because of the death of his son on the cross. But we're still imperfect. We won't be perfect until we're in glory with him forever. And living as imperfect beings, we still are from time to time tempted by the glamour and the razzmatazz of the world. And Satan will try everything he can to apply all the pressure to suck us into this sin-dominated world. But resist it, Paul says. Resist it. You have been changed. You are a new creation in Christ. You have been born again. And the prophet Ezekiel foretold that back in Ezekiel 36. God said to Ezekiel, I will rip out their hearts of stone and I will replace them with a heart of flesh that will beat for me. And that's what God has done. John, uh, Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3. I tell you the truth, to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again, born by the power of God. You must have this old heart ripped out and replaced. We're not better people or better hearts or perhaps better able to keep our New Year's resolutions or whatever. No, we have a new heart. We are new creations in Christ. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Adjust our way of thinking about everything. By how? By being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Be transformed. The force of the original language is a passive imperative. Be transformed. You can't do it yourself. I can't do it myself. I can only do it and you can only do it in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Be transformed. And we can do it with the new heart that we have. We can do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. A total transformation. A tadpole to a frog or an ugly caterpillar to a, to a, to a beautiful butterfly. And such transformation begins with the renewal of our minds. And this is what we must be doing. Be very careful about the sorts of things we read. Be discerning about what we watch on the telly. Don't let Satan influence us into thinking that a little morsel of lust or lies or gossip or whatever is okay. Everyone's doing it. We are to be humble, gracious people, not be transformed by the ways of the world. Think of Daniel. Remember the children of Israel, exiled to Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar gets the, his favourite ones to train them in the palace. Daniel stood firm. He wasn't going to, to indulge in Nebuchadnezzar's activities and his rich food and everything, and Daniel stood firm. He wasn't going to conform to the ways of the palace. He said, I'm only going to eat vegetables. We are to be humble, gracious people. And as we answer the call to commit our lives to Christ, we are called to a monumental no to the schemes of the world and a re resounding yes to the transforming work of the Spirit of God 
as our minds are renewed. We are the salt of the earth. We're not to be the salt of the earth. As Christians, we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. We are to stand out and stand up. So the Apostle has shown us the basis of our committing our lives to Jesus as Lord is God's incredible mercy. He's shown us also the scope of our commitment being our whole lives, our whole beings, every facet or aspect of our lives. If there's something in our lives that we don't commit to the Lord, that's upsetting to him and won't glorify him. We must not just uh, devote our, our lives uh, Sunday mornings coming to church, attending Bible studies, reading our quiet time at home. It's every aspect of our lives. And the means of doing that is ha having our minds renewed by the Spirit's transformation. And as our minds are being renewed, and we have turned from the ways of the world, verse 2, then, with a capital T-H-E-N, you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Then, we'll be able to test God's will and be in it. Then we'll agree with his will, that his will for our benefit and for his glory. When I was growing up a few years ago, I, what was that chuckle about? <laughs> I lived very close, just about on Concord Road in Concord West. Now, in those days, back in the dim, dark ages, Concord Road was probably the second busiest road in that part of Sydney, next to Parramatta Road. Concord Road was extremely busy. And I can remember as a kid, I wanted a push bike. All my friends had push bikes, and I didn't. And I wanted a push bike for Christmas. And I pleaded with my parents for a push bike. And my parents wisely said, a push bike is not the best thing for you because we live on such a busy road. And in fact, not long before that, one of our friends was actually killed on his push bike. So my parents said, no, a push bike's not the right thing for you. But what we suggest is that we get you a scooter. A scooter. You all know what a scooter is? A scooter, where you can ride around on the footpaths and, 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 and it's much safer. You're not out on the road. A scooter's much better. And my, I, I said, no, all my mates had push bikes. I want a push bike. And they kept saying, no, a scooter is not the right thing for you. Uh, sorry, a push bike is not the right thing for you. So Christmas came. I don't want anyone to preempt the answer to this question because that ruins the whole story. <laughs> Christmas came and I received my present. And my present was a shiny red 
pumped-up tyre scooter. And I was so excited because my parents had conditioned me that their will for me was to have a scooter and not a push bike. And I was excited because I got this scooter. And I agreed with their will for me over time. I didn't straight away. As soon as they said, no, you can't have a push bike, I was pretty crabby about that. But, um, but over time, I agreed that they were right. Far better for me to have a scooter. Far safer for me to have a scooter. And I agreed with their will. And that's what God does for us too. We might want to go to a particular place. We might want to um, spend time with particular people or groups of people. But God might halt us at that stage and say, no, that's not the right way to go. And by the power of his spirit, he can gradually and gently steer us the right way. The passage says, when, when our minds are transformed, then we'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. And I was really happy with my parents because they had shown me a scooter was better than a push bike. God's will is good. It's good for your, for your benefit, my benefit, and for his glory. It's pleasing because it's acceptable and agreeable to his character. It's perfect because as children of God, he, he draws us along the path, the right path, into his kingdom. You see, we don't belong here. As Christians, born-again people, we don't belong on this earth, this sin-dominated world. When we come to faith in Christ, we belong with God in heaven, in glory. And we're just sort of pilgrims passing through. doesn't matter whether we live 10 years or 100 years. It doesn't matter much. We belong with God in glory. And that's where we're heading for. And that's why God's will is so often so diametrically opposed to our desires. Another effect of the transformation of our minds is that we will see ourselves as we really are. See ourselves as we really are. In verse 3, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Pride's out of the question. Pride is the mother of all sin. Pride was the cause of Adam and Eve's fall and it's the cause of every sin. But Paul is saying, don't think of yourselves too highly. This doesn't seem to agree, does it, with what the world tells us, what the media tells us, what the authorities tell us, the constant messages that we hear day after day after day. The three most important people in your lives are you, you and you. The three most important people in my life, me, me, me. That's the message we're getting all the time. Don't think of ourselves with super thoughts, but with sober thoughts. According to the, the faith that God has graciously given us. And when we see that, th that Christ is the standard of measurement, we will see ourselves in the true perspective. When our minds are renewed, by the Spirit of God. We will see ourselves in this new light. We will see God 
at the centre of the universe. And we'll see Jesus as the centre of our lives. And when we put God and Jesus, God and his son, in perspective, everything falls into place. No more navel-gazing. The step two in our mind transformation in offering our bodies as living sacrifices is to have a right view of ourselves. In verses four and five, we need to have a right view also of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're many, many, many people, different people, different functions. We are not like the body of Christ, we are the body of Christ. Each of us, separate and distinct members. Once again, contrary to the ways of the world. The world encourages individualism, possessive achievements. You see it all the time. You see it on the television, in the newspaper. Every day we come across that. But God takes the opposite view. He created us and he's gifted us not for our own personal good, but for the good of the entire body, which is then for his glory. The human body is not a unity despite its diversity. It's a unity because of its diversity. And so it is with the Christian church. We have unity in our diversity. We all have different functions. We're all different members. But let's remember one thing. We are all members of the one orchestra. We all have our parts to play. There is not one soloist among us. Verse 5 of Romans 12 is an incredible verse. It's one that we often gloss over and read over. I know I have for many years. Verse 5, he reads, So in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. How about that? Each of us belongs to each other. Peter, you belong to me. Well, I belong to you. That's staggering, isn't it? No, sorry. It was only staggering because it's Peter. I should have said come around. <laughs> but it's true. We are members of the one body. We are the members with different functions. We've been given different gifts. And Paul expounds this principle of mutuality so beautifully in his letter to the first letter to the Corinthians. When one member weeps, we all weep. When one member rejoices, we all rejoice with him or her. When I get a toothache, my whole body goes out in sympathy. The church is no place for lone rangers. We belong to each other. And finally, what do we think about the gifts that God has so graciously given us? We all have different gifts in verse 6, according to the grace given us. God has given us our gifts. Not for our own good, not for point taking, not for selective use as we decide. But God has graciously given us our gifts for use in the body of Christ. To fulfill the Christian and to grow the body of Christ. And therefore glorify God.
We need to be sharing with one another. We need to recognise and de help develop our brothers and sisters' gifts that he so graciously given. So the Apostle has shown us the basis of our commitment to Jesus as Lord and that basis is God's incredible mercy. He's also shown us the scope of our commitment and the scope is not just at worship time and for an hour or so on Sunday morning, not for when we go to Bible studies during the week. The scope of our commitment is our entire being. He's also told us how we do it. How do we do it? No to the ways of the world. And yes to the ways of God. And then we will know God's will for us and for his church here and for our families. Let me conclude with an illustration it's from a naval story about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The captain of the ship looked into the dark night and he saw a faint light in the distance. Immediately he told his signal man to send a message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. Promptly a return message was received. Alter your course 10 degrees north. The captain was angered. His command had been ignored, so he sent a second message. Alter your course 10 degrees south because I am the captain. Soon another message was received. Alter your course 10 degrees north. I am Seaman Third Class Jones. The captain was furious. He sent a third message, knowing the fear that it would evoke. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a battleship. Quick as a flash, the re reply came back. Alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a lighthouse. <laughs> In the midst of our lives, the difficulties that we go through each day as we contend with the matters and the things of the world, all sorts of voices are shouting at, at us during the night. All sorts of voices telling us what to do and how to adjust our lives. I don't know about you, but I get all these voices all the time. How, how to go about it. And it's not from my wife. But out of the darkness, one voice signals something quite opposite to the rest. Something almost absurd. And this voice happens to be the light of the world. And we ignore it at our own peril. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word once again. And we pray, Lord God, that... Um, that we will indeed commit our lives to Jesus as Lord. So many are happy with him as Saviour, but we want to commit our lives to him as Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you'll uh, help us by the power of your Spirit to put away the things of the world, the, the difficulties and the problems and the, the, the ways that we're sucked into, 
And Lord, we can just sort of go forward uh, knowing that uh, your will is for us to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Heavenly Father, be with us today, be with us this week, and help us to know that in view of your incredible mercy, that we ought to offer our lives, our bodies, a living sacrifice. And this is the only logical, rational, reasonable thing to do. Could we offer you anything less?